so for me personally, I have just witnessed such a healing of my feminine and a reclaiming of my feminine power, a reclaiming of my feminine voice, being able actually to stand up for myself and trust myself and believe myself. Welcome to Belly Dance Live podcast. My name is Jana Komarnitska. I'm a full-time dancer based in Toronto, performing a variety of Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance styles, including belly dance. You can find me at janadance.com as well as on Insta or Facebook by Jana Dance or Jana Komarnitska. I'm happy you've decided to join us for this weekly dose of dance inspiration because here on this podcast we explore all nuances and insights into lifestyle of ballet dancers and we are having amazing star guests who share their stories, secrets and tips with you. I would love to start this episode with amazing news. Our podcast, Ballet Dance Live podcast, has been included in the list of top 15 dance podcasts across the web by Fitspot. Whoa! Not only that, we are actually honored to place this second spot there. It's extremely exciting for me. Guys, I have started this project uh, nine months ago. It was in February, very first episode, very first interview with Marta Corson. And I can't believe that since then we have already reached worldwide audience across almost uh, all major countries where ballet dancers are. We have over 15,000 total downloads, several five-star reviews on iTunes, and we'll most likely reach 50 episodes by the end of this year. So thank you so much, everyone, for supporting this project, for your interest, for your downloads, for your reviews, ratings on iTunes, messages to me, messages to our guests. And of course, thanks a lot to our amazing contributors, our amazing guests who take time, who come and share their knowledge, their experience, their tips uh, with all of us. For me, this project was highly inspirational and uh, I hope for all our listeners you find as much inspiration and new knowledge and insights as much as I do. And uh, thank you so much. By the way, also, I love hearing you from you. Thank you for keep sending me feedback forms from the website, yanadance.com slash podcast. And I love hearing why you are in love with ballet dance. As you know, I always ask this question from our guests, but I also love hearing from our listeners why they love ballet dance. And uh, thank you for your uh, suggestions and um, preferences on which topics or which guests uh, you would love to hear in the future episodes. I am not always able to get people right away on the podcast, but I do definitely look through all these forms and I absolutely surely take them in consideration for inviting future guests on the podcast. So thank you so much for sending your feedback. Love hearing from you and thank you for listening and supporting this project and this podcast. For now, I have one more exciting thing to tell you, to introduce you our 
next guest, Sari, who already had been on this podcast. So if you missed previous interview, go to episode 14 with her. And we talked a lot about her career and her development and how in the last 20 years that she's ballet dance and she was changing and adapting to uh, changes in the ballet dance world and market. So that was very interesting to see uh, how different the path was and uh, like take some key principles that can be applied even for today. And um, I'm absolutely sure you can get a lot of interesting insights from there too. But on today's interview, we focused on a completely different topic that for me was absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing. I changed a lot my mind about many things. I'm not going to spoil it for you. <laughs> I will just let you uh, listen to it. But I also want to highly encourage you, if you found something interesting in it, if you uh, feel that uh, it was interesting, inspiring, or opening to you, for you and discovering some new things, don't also forget to message to our guests and just simply say thank you to them because uh, it's a very little, very simple thing, but it's a big act also of appreciation because they take time and yes, they're in love with Baladins, but they also have very busy schedules often and they come and talk and share all this amazing information uh, with you for free. So don't forget also to just say a little thank you to them and now without any further delays i will just let you listen to this amazing amazing conversation with sadia and uh, hope to hear your thoughts after that hello sadia welcome to the show welcome back to to the podcast <laughs> hi yana thank you so much i'm really excited to delve into some deeper um topics with you yeah, I have been uh, very excited about it too. And I remember you've mentioned some of your favorite topics on the uh, previous, at the end of the previous interview. So I was looking forward to going to other um, subjects because uh, uh, for me, it's uh, one thing to guess what our guests would be interested in talking, but it's completely different. And people sometimes go into the topics or subjects that I had no idea they had interest uh, in. So uh, I'm really excited about uh, having another interview with you and going into a completely different direction. And uh, to start with, um, I remember during previous interview, uh, you talked a lot about uh, your, uh, or actually you briefly mentioned um, your lifestyle and that uh, connection to the nature is important to you. And even on your bio, in your on your website, uh, you saying about your passion to create a holistic and sustainable lifestyle. So to start our conversation, can you go a little bit about what does it mean to you a holistic and sustainable lifestyle? Yeah, well, holistic in general just means kind of bringing balance into your whole life. So not just uh, treating ourselves, you know, if you think of, I think a great example of it is our modern society, but even in our, the way that we treat our bodies um, physically, especially when it comes to health, we sort of com compartmentalize different parts of our health, like, oh, you know, our physical health is different from our emotional health, is different from our spiritual health, you know, oh, if I have this ailment, it couldn't possibly have anything to do with the fact that I might be 
dealing with an emotional stress. It's just what happens, you know, when you're dancing too much or when you get older or you have this, that, or the other, that I developed this back pain or this imbalance in my body. So I'm just going to take some pills that the doctor recommended and treat my body like this object that I just apply something directly to this area or directly to this problem. And that should solve the problem, but it doesn't solve the system or the system that might've created the problem. So that's kind of the concept of holistic living and holistic balance. And you can apply that to anything, right? You know, you can apply it to politics. You can apply it to dance. You can apply it to your home. So I think I'm always looking at everything as an ecosystem of balance in my life and where am I off balance? What areas of my life might not be in full balance? Because I also truly believe that when you get one thing really dialed in in your life or one thing really working well for you, you can use that formula to then take that into other parts of your life. And oftentimes when we can really succeed at one area in our life, we can also succeed in many areas of our life. So for me, that's the the definition of living holistically for me is kind of seeing everything in the whole picture and how everything fits in a system of balance together. Mm. And uh, how does ballet dance uh, uh, fit into this picture? What role ballet dance plays into this lifestyle? Well, I think, you know, we see right now in, especially in the United States, but it's happening all over the world is the return of the feminine, the feminine voice. And I don't just mean female exactly in a female body, but I do mean that also, but just the perspective of the feminine, when you think of yin and yang and Shiva Shakti and creation, destruction, feminine, masculine, you see this rising right now of a healing, a call for the healing of the masculine, which has been greatly perverted, and a voice to the feminine, which has been greatly suppressed. So I think belly dance has played a pivotal role in women finding a channel and finding an outlet to practice healing the feminine side of themselves, um, getting back in touch with that. And I personally believe that's one of the things belly dance has served women along the entirety of the journey of, you know, however belly dance started and where in all cultures. So for me personally, I have just witnessed such a healing of my feminine and a reclaiming of my feminine power, a reclaiming of my feminine voice being able actually to stand up for myself and trust myself and believe myself because of the practice of belly dancing and also because of working through, you know, traumas that I've accumulated in my own lifetime that I've taken on from my family, that I've taken on from the collective consciousness of females for thousands of years in my own ancestral line and in culture and in society I know from myself personally that dancing and specifically belly dancing has helped me to work through that. So I see belly dancing as a huge piece in my own personal life and a pivotal piece for women as a technology 
and a tool to heal, to heal themselves, to heal women, to heal men as well. I don't see it just as something that's available for women. I see it as a technology and a tool for men as well. And what do you think is so special specifically in Balladance? Because we keep hearing again and again this uh, uh, like statements or examples or people's stories referring to Balladance. Uh, uh, and uh, probably like other dance forms or even physical activities, they have some impact too like this on, uh, it just works for different people, different things. But specifically about belly dance, like I was always wondering like what exactly in this dance form is so appealing and uh, what is so special that has such impact on uh, connecting to this feminine energy? Mm. Well, you know, I think, you know, it's very personal to people what they're drawn to, but I do believe that the movements, the innate movements of belly dance are very feminine. And once again, I don't necessarily mean this in, it's only for women, only women can do this. I just mean the actual movements themselves, the energetics of the movements are very feminine in their quality. So even if you think of nature, you know, with flow, there's so much flow in nature. Mother Earth is a feminine entity um, because of the flow of the nature, the water, the elements, the fire, the air, the earth. Even if you think of how nature grows and responds to life, it has to go with the flow of nature, right? It has to go with the flow of the elements. If a tree is living in a wind pattern that constantly blows it in one direction, it's going to grow in that direction. A river is going to meander with the curves of the earth. You know, the lava flow is going to flow with the direction of the mountain. So I just believe that is the innate expression of belly dancing. It's, a, it's you know, womb-centered around the belly button, around the pelvis, um, and so the movements are soft, they're organic, they're in the body. They, it's one of the only dances that I've personally found that connects heaven and earth, the ether and the earth. If you think of a lot of dance forms, they kind of, other dance forms, they sort of focus on one or the other. And they're very linear. There's, you know, exercise, most exercise programs are very linear. Um, I even find yoga to be very angular and linear, right? And Pilates and a lot of these different fitness things that are just very linear and put us in these kind of angular or linear poses. Whereas belly dance, everything is moving, all of your energy centers, you know, and I'm not even like an expert on chakras or energy centers or anything like this, but all of my friends who are, and we have these discussions and these conversations, we can get pretty deep into how, all of the chakras and all of the energy centers are activated. Um, so you're really tapping into that balance again. You could say, again, you could bring in the concept of kundalini energy, which is aligning all the centers of the chakras through the body, through the spine. And belly dance really activates that. It's a creative energy, right? Again, because we're focused on the womb and the hips. It's the woman's natural center of gravity. So again, it's very feminine. Um, a man's center of gravity is much lower. 
in the base of his hips where a woman's center of gravity is higher in the pelvis and hips. So, um, yeah, I just find it to be an extremely feminine movement form that, um, the only other thing that I've really found to be similar is something like Tai Chi or Qigong. So I started practicing some Tai Chi and Qigong when a friend of mine, a male, um, Qigong practitioner after a show once said, I don't think you have any clue the power you're wielding up there in those dance movements in terms of energy movement and receiving and recycling and giving energy. And I'm like, wow, you know, this was like pretty much when I first started dancing, I'm going, what is he talking about? It sounds really cool, but what is all that? I don't think I'm doing all that. Um, And it took me some years to come full circle to um, explore down that avenue, a little bit of Tai Chi and Qigong. And he was right. So, so far, I would say Tai Chi and Qigong, Tai Chi is specifically is, is a movement practice that reminds me a lot of belly dancing. Of course, they don't have the figure eights and the rolls in the pelvis, but there is this swaying and there's this full integration, holistic integration of the whole body and the energy centers and the flowing of energy. I think that's one thing that's really focused on in the Tai Chi and the Qigong practices, it's all about moving energy, taking energy from the earth. The earth is a huge uh, source of energy for us, whether we consciously are aware of that or not. Science has even proved proved that to us now with the Schumann frequency of the earth, um, the ionic exchange that happens between human skin, electrical currents that happen when the human foot touches the earth. So we've heard of this concept of earthing, but also taking the energy. Um, now there's neuroscientist uh, Jack Cruz studying sun gazing. There used to be this ancient practice of sun gazing that most people today would say, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. You can't look at the sun. You're going to go blind. You're going to damage your eyes. Well, now they have found that actually we need just free sun energy coming in through our eyes. We actually absorb more energy through the sun, uh, through our eyes than anywhere else, even through, than through our skin. And we actually produce vitamin D even just by the UVA and B that comes through the eyes. So, uh, we're finding all these ancient tapped in, tuned in, holistic humans really were onto something here. Right. So, I feel like belly dancing is a part of that ancient lineage that was really tapped in and tuned into something as well. Um, and then just going back to that connection of the heaven and earth, I, I said this in my dance class last week, as we were talking about posture, you know, we really ground into the earth with our feet and we pull energy, you know, we take leverage from the earth. So we really feel the earth supporting us through our feet and our legs and our hips. And then we inhale and we lift up to the heavens and we allow that vulnerability and that surrender in the upper body to receive the grace of spirituality from the the ether or from the heavens. And so I have not seen any other dance form that does that in the same manner. They're either very uh, grounded or they're very ethereal. So if you think of ballet, to me, ballet is very angular, very linear and very ethereal it's very almost that's why it has this intellectual appeal because it's reaching up you know there's something high and distinguished and sophisticated about it because we're always reaching to go higher with ballet 
um, it's missing the connection to the earth. Whereas other dance forms, you know, if you think of, and they all have a purpose. I'm not saying one is better than the other. They all have different purposes and functions and give us different feelings. Um, but if you think of some of the very indigenous folk dances from all around the world that are very foot dominated or, you know, leg dominated, or even like in some of the African dances where it's very, you're down in this deep squat or this deep plie and it's so healing. It's such a healing, like receiving that energy from the earth. Um, it's also such a devotion, but the belly dancing, the Oriental dance just has this, this unbelievable, beautiful methodology of connecting both. So I hope that was my very long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. No, very, very interesting and insight and something like reminded a couple of uh, things that I heard uh, um, like on other, from other people too. Like for instance, I remember that you were talking about uh, dance uh, healing properties and like spiritual aspect of different dance styles. Uh, I remember listening to the uh, one episode of podcast by uh, Sahara Rose. She's the author of um, Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. It's uh, supposedly a very famous book in Ayurvedic um, world. And she was talking on that episode. She was basically comparing... I may be wrong with terminology. I'm not really much uh, familiar with uh, uh, Eastern studies and Ayurveda specifically, but uh, different kinds of uh, personalities in terms of energy, like Vita, uh, Vata, or um, Pita. I think they call them doshas. It's basically how much uh, those elements you have in your personality from fire, water, or other um, elements of Earth. And uh, uh, she was basically comparing different uh, styles to it. And I remember she was talking about ballad dance also as um, one of the healing properties of connecting to a feminine energy in the body. But what I remember she mentioned that really was surprising for me, she put yoga more as a um, male energy and dance styles as a female energy. And something you mentioned too, that I was like, oh, right, I remember also... Um, like hearing it from some experts that are not even coming from the dance uh, <laughs> dance background, but like uh, connecting uh, more like uh, then there is a flow of movement instead of linear um, movements. They are more connecting to feminine energies. That's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember I really liked also um, a, a note from uh, Osgan, Mr. Osgan, who we also had interview with him previously on the podcast, but he was saying that ballad dance is actually one of the few dance forms that very strongly connects uh, both this flowy energy of water or air and this... Um, in, in and young energies because we have very fluid movements of hips, hip circles, figure eights, arm waves, but at the same time we have a lot of sharp accents such as uh, hip drops or whoever calls them in whichever terminology like shimmies or uh, chest uh, locks, uh, lifts, <laughs> like and all these yeah. other completely different energy of movement and ballad dance uh, combines them too. Do you think this is one of the main 
keys or reasons why ballet dance became so popular all around the world? I think so. I mean, that's my personal belief. Yes. Um, there's just something about it, you know, and I don't even know. <clears throat> I, I can't even distill out myself verbally exactly what it is about oriental dance, rock sharky, belly dance that makes it so appealing to people, but it really is. It's, it's really, and that's again, that feminine quality is it's very mysterious. It's very, has a effect on you and you go, Oh, you know, and for some people that's what makes them feel uneasy actually like, Oh, why is this? Uh, it really does have this magical mesmerizing quality, especially when the practitioner is really tapped into their, their work, right. What it is that they're doing that it can really touch us. And um, again, I think it's just that embracing of that feminine aspect and an aspect of the feminine that we don't get to see. It's a raw vulnerability that is not depicted in our society very commonly, you know? So you think of how the feminine has been represented in society and culture, and it's been very, um, it's been very doctored up and like, you know, this is what a hot, sexy woman should look like. Who's in touch with herself, you know? And, um, I just think most women don't resonate with that. They look at that and go, well, they're repelled by it. And they go, well, that's not me. And I'll never be that. And I guess I'm not a sexy, beautiful woman then because geez, you know? So we have this perversion again of what we are told we are supposed to look like and be like to be fitting into that feminine label. But most women don't connect with that. Even if they come close to that label, even if they could fit into that box. For me, I just feel that belly dance has allowed women and not just women, men too, to step into a space of reflecting maybe their truer innate feminine qualities or even masculine qualities through an art form that allows them to more authentically represent themselves. And so when you see a practitioner that does oriental dance, that's really in touch with their truth and their authenticity. That's what really moves us because we see, and this happens in all art. That's the function of art, in my opinion, is, you know, authentic expression from somebody's deepest parts of themselves, their soul, whatever you want to say there. Um, so belly dance gives us a, an avenue and an outlet. It's a medium, just like paint is a medium or singing is a medium, a musical instrument is a medium. Oriental dance is a different medium of expression than ballet. And so the people who are drawn to it already have that desire to express themselves in that way. And so then the belly dance medium really fits for them and then they can express themselves but we see this whole different representation then of the feminine that we don't see uh our pop culture or our typical representations and society and expectations right um and for some people that's extremely liberating and for some people that's extremely terrifying and for other people they they will project all of their own stuff onto that, right? Like, well, that's not what, you know, women should be doing or behaving also, you know, what, what empowers one person might actually demean another, but that's, 
you know, that's all subjective and we can't take somebody's power away from them because they choose that this is the expression for them, but it might not be the expression for somebody else. So there's still a lot of stuff going on. It's what we talked about earlier with the Me Too movement and all the healing and the holistic healing that needs to happen between the feminine and the masculine that, well, on one hand, belly dancing is extremely healing to to the situation right now and to many women and to many men. It's also very triggering. It's scary for people to see people stepping into their power in all ways, but also uh, especially through mediums like belly dancing and people project and they pervert it also and they get it wrong. And, you know, this is life. How can we ever move away from that? I don't know. Yeah, that's so true. Like uh, belly dance is one of the uh, um, really magic places or uh, spaces, I would say, that can really help to heal a lot of things. But sometimes the healing goes through the unpleasant moment of triggering something or like reminding something, then person actually needs to face it and go through it. Uh, so uh, I guess it's still a uh, healing, but uh, maybe not that painless healing, <laughs> if to say it. Uh, but one of the topics that also fascinated me, uh, like when I was thinking about how ballet dance is connecting women from all, and not only women, uh, but like uh, people from all around the world, from different countries, different cultures. And uh, um, of course, there are a lot of uh, uh, discussions uh, uh, about ballet dance, coming from ancient sacred dances like I never really was researching this topic and I never really like paid uh, much attention like oh is it really that ancient dance form or not like I really don't know I always thought like just because of its nature and the movement that it has in ballet dance it may have some similarities uh, to those like ancient sacred dances that combine all feminine energy and maybe that's why it appeals to so many people all around the world but uh what are your thoughts or maybe you you know something like uh, did some <laughs> research at some point or just your thoughts like how do you think is there any real uh, like direct or sort of direct connection between ballet dance oriental dance and uh, those sacred ancient dances that may may connect us all in in the roots <laughs> of ancient times. Yeah, well, this is just an absolutely incredible, fascinating, just wow question, right? I mean, I think so many of us practicing this dance have that same curiosity and wonder. Um, and I think that's the same wonder we look back to ancient history with in general, right? Because there's so much we don't know. There's so much we will never know. There's so much we can't know, you know, but it, there's something that we feel, yeah, that we can't uh, dismiss. You know, there's something that we're feeling in that connection in our own bodies, as you said, in that connection with other people when we practice it together that we're like, hey, this is a little bit more than just a belly dance workshop, isn't it? Like, we're doing something here. Like, what is this, you know? Um, personally, I, I have tried to 
look into this topic myself. And the truth is, is we, we can't connect those dots yet. We're not there. Uh, there's a lot of um, really amazing researchers and scholars who are now pursuing um, that historical aspect of Oriental dance and belly dance. And um, so far, the dots are not being easily connected. Um, there's still a lot of debate, even where the dance really came from. Um, as we know, we have that whole uh, migration through the Romani Trail coming from North Africa and um, a separate migration that went, the, the Domari that went down into Egypt area. Um, so we have a lot of people studying this, uh, but it's not answering all our questions. We're getting now with more and more research, we're realizing it's not holistic yet. It hasn't integrated all of what the diversity and the things that we see in belly dancing, that explanation has a big part to do with it, but it hasn't explained it all yet. And then we have ancient temple dances. You know, we do see that in India. We do have lineages to tie back to ancient temple dances in India. Um, there is evidence to suggest the same in ancient Egypt. Um, in fact, one of my um, teachers, Professor Hassan Khalil, he has, I believe he has a double PhD and he wrote extensively about this in the 60s and 70s about um, symbolism through dance. So he studied the, the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and has some pretty interesting theories on, so he personally, and I can't uh, quote him exactly, he's a very deep philosophical man, and I haven't been able to fully deconstruct all of his ideas and theories, even in the time I've spent with him studying with him. Um, but one of his ideas is that without a shadow of a doubt, if you're asking him, Egyptian dance today is not as much a part of this Romani trail as it is have had been passed down from Pharaonic culture. So, you know, he says specifically in Egypt, Egypt is a, a country of uh, for sure six to 7,000 years of recorded history where we can look back and, you know, these people, even though there was influence from that Romani trail and the Domari and, and other outside influences, you know, there's been a lot of, occupation and, um, you know, the French and the British and before that and the Greeks and the Romans. However, they do have one of the, the longest standing civilizations on the planet. And as he says, you can't take that, you cannot distill that out of the Egyptian people or the Egyptian dance. So, um, you know, he does this really cool demonstration. Anybody who's studied with him, he's such an incredible storyteller. So I, uh, again, Hassan Khalil, anybody who hasn't had the opportunity to study with him or at least sit down with him and hear him speak, it's, it, it, it's an experience. It's amazing. Another incredible professor I love, uh, or doctor I love speaking with is Mo Gadawi, and we can talk about him shortly too. Uh, however, so going back to Hassan Khalil, he does this incredible interpretation of he starts to move his body in the form of the hieroglyph that he studied. And then he starts talking about the symbolism of the nature and how the nature influenced the movements. And this is true. We see 
in all indigenous cultures around the world, they are reenacting nature and life. They're reenacting sex. They're reenacting birth. They're reenacting farming. They're reenacting fishing. They're reenacting all these daily life things that we will die without. We are so uh, sheltered in our modern day lives to actually think we have control over nature. Um, and it's a facade. So the indigenous people were very connected to that process. So all of their dances and songs reflected that. So he goes through this whole analogy of distilling out the hieroglyphs, showing these dances that he studied on the hieroglyphs, moving it into a more modern movement, taking what he deemed as a, a ancient pharaonic dance and then showing now here it is here now if i just add this one little tweak it becomes a saidi you know and then now you know so it's really cool listening to him and watching him so i think there we have evidence for sure of an evolution of movement as a technology for understanding our human experience so for me Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, are, could these dances be related? Yes, they're related. Are they the same dance? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, modern day belly dance, we can pretty much accredit that to, to uh, the inspiration of the golden age, the golden era of Egypt with the movies and cinema. What belly dance looks like before then very, very hard for us to know. I mean, one, one really interesting rabbit hole to go down is the Awalim. And we don't know very much about the Awalim either. These were the, some people call them courtesans. They were professionally paid high courtesans and entertainers that would be hired by um, royalty basically to perform. And there's some really beautiful books about, written about accounts of seeing the Awalim and then there, there was also the Gawazi who were also performing uh, at around the same time. And the Gawazi were banned from Egypt. They went north. They started to perform under the guise of being a Wallen so that they could still perform. So then we have this whole intermingling and meshing and are the Gawazi and the Awalim the same? Are they different? If they were different, who was who? And then you have some people saying that the Gawazi all come from this Domari lineage. And then there's other people now who are saying that's not true. We actually have evidence of Gawazi in parts of uh, what would be considered Lebanon and Syria now who are not part of that ethnic background. So it's very complicated. It's very deep. It's academic. It's scholarly. And I'm not a scholar. So I'm just kind of reciting some of the research that I personally have been reading about. Um, but to tie the dance back to maybe some sacred temple dances, I don't think it's impossible to draw that conclusion, but we just don't have the evidence to support it yet. And, and also, if you think about it, I don't know that it would look the same or what it would have looked like, you know, because what were those sacred dances? You know, we sometimes have these images of, like the high priestesses or the, what did they call them? The, um, like in Greek and Roman, the, the, uh, the oracles, the priestesses. Um, could there be a connection there once again? 
maybe is the form of dancing that they were doing the same as what we would consider belly dance. Maybe there was some similarities. I don't even know if there was dancing involved. It seems like when you needle through Roman, ancient Roman and Greek um, history, you can definitely find connections to that as well. But was it the same dance? I don't know. Um, So then there's a really cool book, several cool books, if you want to really get into uh, history of the feminine and woman. And there's one book called uh, When God Was a Woman. It's been a long time since I've read the book, but I remember just having my mind blown. Basically what the book presents, I think it was like a, a PhD who studied women's history and prehistory. And sadly, most of women's history was not recorded because it wasn't allowed to be recorded. And his story is called his story for a reason. It was written by men and men in power. So it was written by the church and it was written by the kings and it was written by the sultans and it was written by, you know, and so we don't have very many written accounts of actual women telling their story. We have accounts of this dance of, oh, when I was in Egypt, you cannot believe the curiosities I saw, these women dancing for the salt. You know, we can't take that stuff on face value. We're talking about a Western man who went into a different culture that he knows absolutely nothing about with a imperial mindset of, you know, going in, this is the whole concept of Orientalism and coming home and telling fantastical stories about what he saw. So, but we don't have any accounts of a woman who actually wasn't a Wallim or a woman who was a Gawazi or a woman who was practicing any of these dances and wrote about it. And that writing survived for us to read, let alone multiple accounts for us to cross-reference. What did this dancer say compared to that dancer? So it's a beautiful, amazing thing to think about. But yeah, I I don't know when you just, if you hear anything, let me know. I'm always like, Oh, I want to know this so much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know there is only one probably uh, account from female traveler from Orientalist times. I think if I'm not right now, my memory tricks on me, but it's Lady Montagru. I will definitely double check <laughs> before stating anything and just put in the show notes to this episode for anyone who wants to check. But her accounts, she was the wife of... Um, I don't know how to say, ambassador, I guess, uh, of those times, uh, who traveled in Egypt. And she was, uh, uh, but quite interesting uh, uh, observations from her side, because they were were less, um, uh, how to say, um, I mean, we still don't know how much truth or not truth was in those writings, but they they were less... um, about exaggerating the exoticism of people. Even I remember reading about her accounts on the outfit, because for uh, in many um, Western uh, male accounts uh, or description that it was something like, uh, oh my God, it's so unusual, so revealing, or like, uh, or pants, so they were in these um, pants underneath kaftans, which is actually male, why they do it. Like, there is a lot of exaggeration there and surprise. And in her account, I remember... It was like, oh, but 
it's actually comfortable. I feel more restricted in my Western clothes after trying on some Turkish outfits or something like that. So it's it's interesting, like other perspective, but we don't have many of those. It's true, and it's so confusing even on accounts, uh, historical accounts or description that we have. Because about Avalim, I actually heard both that they were high and highly sophisticated courtesans, and as well, I heard that they had nothing to do with uh, um, being courtesans but they were more uh, and actually they had nothing to do with dance they were only singers and musicians and they never danced awalim so there is a lot of confusion yeah. of what those travelers actually saw maybe they saw gavazi dances but they were sold as uh, um you know we also need sometimes to think like in their situation they go to foreign countries they are foreigners they want to see, let's say, Avalim, and they ask someone, oh, can you like show me the Avalim performance? And then the locals, maybe they show them, find a way to show real, or maybe they just pretend, oh, this is Avalim, because how those foreigners would really know. So we really don't know, uh, based on those accounts, what actually those people and travelers really saw and described. Uh, so yeah, it's very confusing, but I am definitely going to look more into the work of Dr. Hassan Khalil that you mentioned, because it's really fascinating, like recreating ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and seeing connection to Saidi dance. It's like, wow. I am very, uh, yeah. I'm for a long time was more on a skeptical side. I mean, there is a feel that it connects to ancient dance, but there is no real evidence. And I was like, uh, I had doubts that whenever the statement ballet dance is an ancient form of dance, is it really true? Or is it more like a sales point for people to come to classes? Like, I mean, I don't know what I don't know, but I was more on the skeptical side, but now definitely going to look more into his work because it sounds really fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, he did, I believe he did two different, I know he did one PhD just on that alone about the symbolism of dance and uh, ancient, There's a, he has a name for his thesis he wrote, and I I can maybe send it to you. Uh, unfortunately, you can only get access to it, I think, if you're inside the university and I think it, he he published it in, uh, I don't know. I've been wanting to get my hands on it myself. And even he's in his 80s now and he doesn't even have access to his own because he's like, I haven't, you know, I wrote it and I submitted it to the university, but it's not like he's walking around 40, 50 years later with his thesis in hand, you know? So uh, for him now, it's more about the storytelling and what he shares with the students. Um, yeah, there's also another book and that was written. Uh, let me see if I can pull. The, uh, it's called Ancient Egyptian Dances. And uh, Irina Leksova. It's been a while also since I read it. But this might be a nice um, also avenue for uh, students or anybody listening to to continue down that path to understanding a little bit more. She also, I believe... Um, you know, this was uh, academic writings. This might have been her thesis also. I'm not sure. Um, so she she approached this very academically. I think her dad was an Egyptologist. And so, you know, this was very fascinating to her. So Irina Laksova was written in 1974, uh, Ancient Egyptian Dances. Because I think many people, we 
you know, especially when you think of Egyptology, what we hear about is the dynasties and the pharaohs and stuff like that. But we don't hear much at all ever about the culture, especially the dancing or the music. You can actually, you know, what was the ancient Egyptian language? You know, you can go down a whole interesting rabbit hole just there. I once went down trying to find examples of ancient Egyptian music, ancient pharaonic Egyptian language with that language, you know, and that'll take you down the whole rabbit hole of Coptic, the Coptic language and all this. And you can hear some examples of it. Uh, there's really interesting uh, instruments that you can hear that, that uh, were part of the culture of ancient pharaonic Egypt. So I've done that many times, you know, it's just really food for the imagination. Um, so there's that one. And yeah, you're right. I actually have here in my hand right now, the belly dance reader too, from the Gilded Serpent. And there's an account. I don't know if it's the same woman, but there's a woman and it's on page 30 of the belly dance reader too. And it's uh, Ida Craddock. And she tells her recollection and story of seeing exactly what you were um, discussing. She uh, saw she was reviewing the dances in the Chicago World's Fair in the United States and whatever it was, 1893 or something like that. So she did a, a review of the dance and for her time, for the puritanical roots and everything, she gives a pretty fair, her most best attempt at an unbiased review as she could, I think, as a woman living in that time. But it's still very interesting to read because it still can make you squirm as a woman today going, oh, you know, it's still loaded with all this like judgment and preconceived notions, you know. But if you really think of how open minded she was trying to be for that time, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I guess just bringing it back to a personal Personal notes, I personally do feel that there is an ancient lineage to this dance that has survived well before civilization, you know, going into prehistory for sure, and how that has evolved and adapted um, based on, you know, the times and the locations and the needs of women. You know, you still see this all over, especially in Egypt, you know. Um, women dancing together, women coming together and dancing together. Uh, and this is the stuff that we never hear about. Now we're lucky because somebody might have a camera that they snuck some, and they're still not really supposed to do that. You know, they're still not really encouraged. You know, there still are rep repercussions for an Egyptian woman in a woman's party being filmed and getting that out, you know, I mean, so, but sometimes that stuff gets out. So we're allowed that outsider view now to see a woman in a private party, a young woman, an older woman who's not a professional dancer and would never be allowed to uh, dance publicly. So we see this and you see and you sense how strong and ingrained that is in them. This is not like, oh, I'm just going to do a little shimmy shake here for fun. <laughs> How cute. No, this is like that woman stands up and takes the stage and is like, yeah, look at everything my grandma taught me and her grandma before her taught her and her grandma before her taught her and let me work all my 
stuff out right now in this moment to be here in front of everybody and dancing and show my feminine power or, you know, whatever. I could be reading into it too, but it's not just some little like thing. It's, it's in them. It's in their blood. And where does that come from? It's in their body. You know, where does that come from? That comes from many, many, many generations of women passing that down. And I don't think that just started recently. I think this has been an ongoing thing for a very long time. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we can't know much more than that. But I think it's a pretty natural conclusion to draw. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the book, The Baladins Reader 2. I just literally right now pulled it up to <laughs> have it in front of me. Uh, but I also would really recommend for anyone who is interested in analyzing uh, all those historical documentation that we have uh, from Orientalist period, the first edition of The Baladins Reader, I was just really rereading a couple months ago uh, some of the articles there, and they have the whole section about analyzing accounts and impressions of orientalist um, travelers of those times a very very cool resource too anyway i kind of want to pivot a little bit uh into different direction talking about this spiritual aspect of baladins uh, regardless if it has any actual uh, connections to ancient dance forms or not because that's a huge question and uh, we can talk uh, a lot about it and share different resources but it's not uh, like uh, there is no real answer right now but i was curious about other thing and your opinion on that do you think that Dance as a profession then becomes your main job and your source of income. Can it still has uh, maintain its spiritual aspect? It can, but it's hard. At least it has been for me. Um, because I believe anything that's to me personally spiritual is also extremely personal and a devotion that I do just for myself, for nobody else. It's my most, and I'm just giving you my definition of spirituality. It's my most vulnerable, raw authenticity that I may not have a desire to share with anybody else. Um, so, and it's my connection to spirit, right? So it's between me and God. It's between me and spirit. It's between me and my higher self. So when I first started belly dancing, I had a lot more of that because I was just a student doing it. And I would come home and I would play around and explore my body and my movements. And there was this almost like a meditative quality to it or a spiritual practice to it where I was just really in the zone and in the moment and not focusing on any agenda or any ulterior motive of why I was doing it, you know? So, uh, but I actually really rather quickly on my belly dance journey was pushed to perform and became a professional and my teachers were booking me on things. So that kind of got taken from me really fast to where it all of a sudden went from that to oh, we need you to perform this piece and you need to play finger symbols and you need to know how to balance a sword on your head and you need to know how to do a drum solo and you need to not, you know. So then there, the agenda came in. 
Um, and it's not to say that once the agenda came in, I couldn't still tap into all these incredible benefits of belly dance that we've already been talking about. It's just a different, it's not as deep. It wasn't as deep, you know what I mean? So um, for me, it's been a challenge and a struggle. And I find myself more and more the longer I'm, I'm going on 22 years of belly dancing now. Um, trying to, to create rituals and practice where I can be with the dance spiritually, just me and the dance. And um, that has that has been a really positive thing to do that and to try to remove all the expectation and the agenda of the professional life. You know, I think this is the struggle of any artist because of course, wouldn't an artist love to be able to make a living at producing their art so that they can spend more time doing it. But then when you're producing for a reason, you need to meet all the expectations of that. You know, Oh, will people like this? Are people going to buy this painting? Are people going to show up for this workshop? I better put in all these extra bells and whistles to make sure people really like it. So you start to get these ulterior motives for why you're doing it. So I don't think it's impossible. I just think you need to be aware of that and you need to set time aside to connect to your dance on a deeper, more spiritual level if that is something that you wish to get out of it. I really liked the... Um... There is one uh, a very famous Ukrainian ballet dance designer, Helen Huskivaza, but on one of her social media page, she put a tagline. Um, I'm translating from Russian, so it's it may not word by word uh, recreate it, but it's pretty um, uh, pretty similar. Like she basically put, um, "I don't want to create to be paid. I want to be paid to create." Yeah. And it's a yeah. little twist, but it's uh, like where the then your passion transforms into the income source. Especially, it's tricky if it's the only one or main income source. Where to balance it? So uh, I was uh, thinking to ask you. Maybe you have some, I don't know, tips or suggestions or stories from your life or maybe some rituals or exercises, whatever you don't mind sharing or comes to your mind, that you may suggest someone who is transitioning from the um, student or just ballet dance lover into this professional ballet dance world. How to balance this professional hustle and still be true to yourself and to dance? Well, I would say having that ritual and that set aside time to be with the dance naturally and organically without any expectation. So yes, we all have to show up and work, right? So if there's, if you have to come up with a workshop topic for something, or you have to come up with a performance for an upcoming show that you're getting paid for and they have an expectation of what they want from you like for me personally everybody wants my drum solo and I'm like geez Louise I've been doing a drum solo for 20 years like I can do something else like so for me I like drum solo but I'm like bored to death with drum solo like I can't even hardly stand it sometimes anymore I'm like I want to do something else um so for me that's what I'm doing now I I I have a playlist. The first, this is how I do it. So I, I have a playlist that whenever I hear music 
that just moves me and inspires me. And it might not even be Middle Eastern music. Oftentimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just something completely different um, that I feel my body wants to move to this. And then when I have time that I can set aside to just turn that music on um, and move and do everything, let my body move. I don't, and again, I don't put expectation on, oh, this hip drop must go on this doom and this must go, you know, I don't do that to myself either when I'm in um, a spiritual practice of dancing. I just move and I just let my body move organically and freely to the music and Sometimes some really cool stuff comes out. I used to like film it and be like, oh, I need to, and then go back and watch it and take that piece out of there. But then I realized I was manipulating the situation again. So now for me, it's just a practice of free flow. It's like a free flow state. And it shows up for me then in dance later. So as a professional, when I am approaching my craft as a, as a profession, that free flow practice and free flow creativity that I do every once in a while shows up, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, my body already has this pattern, you know, that it wants to do or has this uh, desire to express in this kind of interesting, odd way now. Or um, So for me, that's how I do it. And it doesn't happen as much as I would like it to. So, you know, some people might say, well, how often do you do that? The honest, sad truth is, maybe four times a year. And it's just because to find that time and because it's a ritual to me, you know, and so to really find the time and the space and to be in the right frame of space and mind in myself to just go somewhere for, you know, a studio or in my house, if I have the house to myself and not be distracted, because that's the other thing, like, I don't want to be distracted when I do that. So but it's powerful. And I have found for me that I don't need it to be too much more than four times a year, because what I get out of those four times is incredible. And it sustains me. And it sustains my love for dance. It sustains um, my passion and my creativity. Uh, Also, for me, taking other dance forms and being a student. I have to be a student. If I am not a student, I am not creative. I am not happy. Uh, I, I feel just everything feels wrong <laughs> to me. So I currently like practice as a student in other things like four days a week. I go to yoga. I go to Pilates. I go to ballet. Um, sometimes I have a friend who teaches lyrical and contemporary and I go and you see none of this is belly dance. So um but I feel so good after being a student. I just feel, ah, I feel so connected again. Um, And I think honoring my role. So I think one thing that when I first got into this, I almost felt like I always for a very long time felt like I'm not worthy of this and I'm not good enough to be doing this yet. And why do these people want me to teach them? And why do these people want to watch me dance? I'm not even good. So I was really young and I didn't know any better, but I had this really bad internal dialogue that didn't serve me or anybody who was hanging out with me. So now I just, um, again, it's a very spiritual practice, but say I'm going to go to my Monday night class and teach. And this is something you could very easily take for granted, right? Like, oh, I got to go teach my Monday night class. I wish I could stay home and eat bonbons or whatever, right? Um, 
No, I, I prepare myself ritualistically now to get ready to go to Monday night class, center myself, know that I am holding a space for all these women who also like me have a busy life and have so much to do and just want that one hour and a half with me and other women to feel free in their bodies and forget about everything for that short little while and laugh and sweat and be frustrated to learn something new. So to me, that is just an honor of the highest form. Like, holy cow, it's like a service. It's like church, you know, it's like, so I really see it as that now. And also when I'm performing the same thing. So anybody who's coming into this as a profession uh, think higher, think on a deeper, higher spiritual level about what it is that you're offering and serving your students and your audience and the world at large. Like, you know, understand the power that you're wielding with that and honor it. I would say for me, those are the three things. Wow, like a lot of great things and great analogies. And uh <sighs> I especially, like, for myself, uh, loved really your uh, point with um, just having time with dance on its own and not even trying to video record. Because this is something I noticed also, like, I once in a while tried to just improvise without any, like, specific purpose and try to record it. But then it comes like... Uh, uh, or maybe I'll get something cool for my next choreography, or maybe there will be some cool piece I can post on social media, or like all those other thoughts. So you never really on its own, just together with dance. If you have the video camera, you all almost like as have the whole world or your own eyes watching you, even if you may not really rewatch that video again, but there is this thought on your mind that I may rewatch and analyze it. Uh, but it takes away from actual connection to the dance. That's very, very powerful point. Uh, I mean, that's something I specifically for myself felt like connected to this. Oh, I need to review this. <laughs> yeah. And even if you can just do it once, I mean, I'm not joking. After my son was born, there was like probably a two or three year period. And I even posted one time, I was like, oh my God, it was like a miracle. I think my son was like two and I'm like, oh my God, you guys, I just booked the studio for three hours to myself. I haven't done this in two years. Like it was like, it was like a moment for me, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it's don't let the time factor deter you either. It's just, if all you can get is an hour, once every six months, you know how you're going to approach that hour? It's going to be like, you know, love making to the highest degree of like, you know, I am really dedicating myself to this hour with this dance, like a date with dance, you know, it's amazing. Hmm. A date with dance. We need to start new movement. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Uh, just coming closer to wrapping up our interview, I kind of want to sum up everything. Um, asking about your retreats we slightly talked about them in the previous interview but i know that you really like this format of retreats because it allows you to put a lot of things that we talked right now into these events so it's not only dance workshops it's more about uh, spiritual experience i would say so can you tell us a little bit more about the format uh, just for people who may not have heard the previous interview or some like 
more in, from the lens of what we talked today, how you combine dance and spiritual aspects or just like more lifestyle in your retreats? Well, it was a dream of mine also about 10 years ago that I wanted to start doing retreats. And I think I did my first retreat about six, seven years ago. Um, so yeah, for me, the number one thing when I set up my retreats is always the element of nature, because for me, this is, this to me is God, this is my, my, um, church. So anytime I'm in nature, it's the one time where everything else just drops away and I am just one-on-one -on -one with the universe and myself. So all of my retreats have to have a very strong element of being, kind of secluded out in nature somewhere. So whether that be the mountains in Switzerland, the mountains in Colorado, uh, my Costa Rica one that's actually coming up in about 10 days is nestled in the jungle right on the beach. So we're in the jungle and then we're, you know, about five minutes from the beach. And so we just have this incredible healing energy of nature around us and everybody just everybody transforms just from that. And some people are aware of that power of nature and other people are not. They're really like, my God, I feel so good here. I feel so happy. I feel so connected. I'm like, yeah, baby, that's not me or the retreat. That's nature. So, you know, give it up to, to give credit where it's due. Right. So that's the first element. And then the second element is <clears throat> the, the link. So we always go for five to seven days minimum because we want to develop a trust with the group where we start to explore we do different things we we get a little brave and we try different stuff and we push ourselves um we train hard but then we also um have a lot of quality time after these intensive trainings all day long to sit together we eat together all day long and then we have these little parties and these little excursions and different games and things, activities that we do together to, again, facilitate bonding and sort of processing of our emotions through dance. I mean, one of the elements, one of the powerful effects of dance that we didn't even touch on on the podcast, <clears throat> some people might be familiar with the, con uh, the, the technique of somatic therapy. So moving emotions and trauma out of the body, releasing it out of the body through movement. It doesn't have to be dance necessarily, but dance is a very powerful tool for doing that. And I think belly dance specifically is an incredibly powerful tool for releasing unconscious dealt with traumas out of the body. So I see it all the time, all the time. We get in a training and it's not just the retreats. It could be a workshop and we're training hard, especially my certification program and people hit their frustration level, which is what you have to do to grow. You can't ever grow in anything you're doing until you break that glass ceiling and you move to the next level, which is extremely uncomfortable, extremely inconvenient. And it feels extremely defeating. Um, so I see people in my trainings and the retreats, they go through these moments of self deprecation and, and self-defeat, you know, and, and it's a lot, sometimes it can be very emotional to the point where people cry and they want to leave or, you know, and then we have each other, we bring this stuff up. So it is almost like an organized therapeutic session where, you know, I bring, I guide people through this. I let them know what they could experience in that situation. 
Um, you know, and I don't know, there's just a magical element to it. Again, people, one of the things they always say after my retreats is how do you create these circles and these communities of women? Like I've never experienced this before. A lot of people will say, I feel like a lot of my journey in belly dancing, there's a lot of cattiness and a lot of jealousy and a lot of competition. And I have never experienced this where a group of women are so supportive and there's none of those other factors at play here. And I'm like, well, that's, I don't take a whole lot of credit for that. Again, I think the element of nature, the time that we spend together and addressing these deeper spiritual aspects of our dance, instead of just showing up and ah, shake your hips and one, two, three, four, harder, harder, harder. Wah! You know, it's, we really touch on why are we doing this in the first place? We're not going to belly dance class just to go one, two, three, four, shake, 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 pop, lock, lock. Like there is a deeper element in why anybody shows up to do anything. Right. And so we really, um, we embrace that. We talk about that and we just set the stage and we set the space for people to be vulnerable and to try new things. And we really support each other in that process. Myself included a couple of retreats ago in Costa Rica, I had a major personal situation arise where I had Aziza was my guest instructor and she had to take over for me. I, uh, I kind of had to tap out for a couple days. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of emotional releasing and Aziza just looked at me and said, I got this girl. You just take care of yourself. And it was just this gracious, incredible moment of, yes, this is why I'm doing this, you know, um, to create that space for women to support each other and love each other. We need that. We need more of that in the world. We need more of that in our lives. And I guess at the end of the day, that's really what the retreats are about. Yeah, so true. We definitely need more of this. Uh, and not only in ballet dance, but in life in general. So thank you for holding one of those spaces for, for all dancers. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. And I heard, I've never been, but I really, it's one of the events on my list that I really want to go to. And I heard from many people, um, especially uh, after our first interview that we released, so many people, I don't know if they messaged you, I hope so. But I messaged, I received a lot of messages just uh, again referring to your retreats and how uh, much they like loved hearing from you even more and they attended retreats in before so they recognize a lot of things that you were talking about in your activities that you put uh, and embodied in this event so thank you so much for all your work and for really holding this uh, amazing space for for people for all of us <laughs> Aw, thank you yana thank you for your work that you're doing and getting belly dance out there on this beautiful level for people to get inside of dancers minds and I just think one of the coolest things and as you're learning through your podcast I think belly dancers are some of the most brilliant smartest genius minds we have out there and most people don't know that most the public at large could easily look at belly dancers like oh you know what a lazy choice to be a belly dancer but you couldn't do this you couldn't do something else the truth is so many belly dancers gave up, you know, full out careers and, you know, there's doctor belly dancers and there's like scientist belly dancers and there's psychologist belly dancers and neuroscientist belly And not that you have to be that to be an incredible person, but I, I love that you are 
presenting it for the world for people to see the brilliance behind the dance. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for your support and uh, time put in the project too. And one of the fascinating things that I keep repeating, but it's really something that inspires me and makes me keep moving to this project, that is every every single interview, you get so much insights. And sometimes like I interview like people, I just know them as an artist, I love their work, dance, and then I think, oh, we probably will talk about like this dance style or whatever, like something related to what visually we see as their dance art through videos or through live events. And then I start talking and the conversation just goes into a completely different direction that I could never predict. And it just shows so much thoughts and uh, so much underneath the dance that we see just as a glamorous thing on stage but there is so much work and thoughts and uh, uh, art and uh, and uh, philosophy and many 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 different things that stays behind the scene uh, that I really love uh, love that this kind of interviews and podcast it, it can show and share and inspire people who, who are on very different levels of their belly dance journey. So thank you as one of our guests to really supporting and sharing your knowledge and time with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jana. My pleasure. I hope to hear from everybody out there and see everybody somewhere around the world. <laughs> Yes. And I also know that you have one uh, online project coming up, launching soon, <laughs> your online yes. studio. <laughs> yes. Um, it has been two years in the making. This has been like the biggest labor of love I've ever embarked on. I hired a team of developers. I've spent my entire life savings and it's finally here. So right now we are actually in testing. Everything is uh, built. The site is built and all the bells and whistles. And we have almost 100 videos of content already recorded and up on the site. And the special launch date we are aiming for what we call here in the United States is Black Friday, which I believe is um, November 23rd. It's our biggest shopping day here in the United States. So we're kind of launching for that day, uh, aiming for that day as our launch day, and we'll have some special coupon codes for people to um, buy subscriptions, but also to try a free class and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for mentioning that. It's called Rocks Online, www.rocksraqsonline.com. Uh, as many people know, rocks means dance in Arabic. So that is the name of the site. So come check it out. Um, be up by the end of November and we will be really rolling full steam ahead by the new year with lots of exciting things other than classes too. So hopefully people will follow the journey of how Rocks Online developed. Oh, awesome. I will definitely put links in the show notes to this episode so it's easy for everyone to go check check it and follow also their Instagram page. I know um, you post their snippets of recording and classes, so it's a little preview already of what's uh, coming up. Like, And you have not only dance classes, but even classes in Arabic language and Zils, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going all out. Yeah, we're just trying to present people with lots of different fun things to try. So that's, that's the goal there. 
And I always finish every episode with the same question, but I already asked you on the previous episode, previous interview, so whoever uh, missed uh, your answer regarding why you're in love with Baladin so much, go to the previous interview and listen there. But I thought it would be funny to finish with... um, just fun question because you on the previous interview you were telling about your first um, connection with belly dance through Halloween party <laughs> and here we are uh, October end of October uh, 2018 soon Halloween too uh, so uh, my last question to you what is gonna be your Halloween uh, costume for this year <laughs> Oh, well, this year I decided to be Catwoman. (laughs) So my Halloween costumes usually are not super elaborate or exciting, but um, I don't know why I chose Catwoman, actually. It just came up for me, and I went for the Holly Berry version of Catwoman. So I got some nice leather pants and bustier and a little latex cat hat, and um, I already went to one Halloween party with that, and yeah, it was fun. So Catwoman this year. So I don't know if that means something for my future. Maybe I'm going to be a, maybe I'm going to move into the superhero department for my next career. (laughs) Uh, I was just about to joke, but please no cardinal changes in the career. Or you can be a super um, belly dancer, (laughs) superhero belly dancer. Yeah, (laughs) awesome. Um, thank you once again for your time and uh, on this uh, positive note uh, just uh, wishing you good luck with all your projects and all your events and uh, hope to host you on the podcast again in the future I would love that thank you Yana thank you everybody for listening guys thank you so much for spending this time with us and if you like this episode it will mean a world to me if you take a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes or share it with your friends Also, you can always find more information about podcast as well as past episodes at yanadance.com slash podcast. As well as you can connect with me on social media by yanadance or Yana Komarnitska. I'm very active on Instagram as well as Facebook and share a lot of tips and inspiration for your daily ballet dance life. And by the way, don't forget to subscribe to podcasts so you never miss a future episode. And until next time, keep shimming.